Praise God. You know, I just want to start out by saying um, how honored I am to be here today. Um, man, I, we used to have church at Pizza Train. They're awesome. They're like pineapple pizza. We just yes. like, chopped it up. Man, uh, I missed that. Anyway. So anytime you want to rehash that, um, yeah, I just, uh, Pastor Luke and I, Christine, you guys are awesome. We love you. And we thank you. Um, best sermon ever. No pressure, I guess. Right? <laughs> um, one of my goals, by the way, guys, is to someday uh, elevate my cool factor enough to where I can wear fuchsia pants. Someday, someday, we'll be there. Um, I want to start out today uh, with a little joke. My wife told me not to tell this joke, <laughs> so I'm going to tell it first. Why would I listen to my wife? So there's there's these two guys, black guy, white guy, best friends. They uh, their families. Uh, vacation together, they spend holidays together, they work together, they spend every single day at lunchtime, they have lunch together. And what they do, they work construction, they work in these big high-rises somewhere on top of these huge high-rises. And they sit, and every now and then they'll have this, this conversation. And uh, the white guy will say, he'll say, you know, I think Jesus is white because, like, look at all the pictures. And he's white, right? And then the black guy will say, hey, you know what, no, Jesus lived in Africa, dude. He's Totally, and both of them are obviously are wrong, but they have this conversation all the time. And so uh, this this goes on for years. And one day they're up in the top of this building, they're having lunch, and they forgot to harness themselves. And a big gust of wind comes and knocks them off, and they, and they unfortunately they both die. But as soon as they open their eyes in heaven, uh, they notice that they're they're there. They're at the city. They're at the the, the pearly gates. They're ready to go into the kingdom. And one looks at the other and says, "Hey, I got an idea." St. Peter is at the gate. Let's ask him if Jesus is black or white. And the other one says, dude, that's awesome. Yes, let's ask him that question. So they go to the St. Peter and say, we got this question. Is Jesus black uh, or is Jesus white? And he says, well, Jesus is right over there. Why don't you go ask him? So they walked over and they said, hey, Jesus. And he turned around and he goes, what is the deal, muchachos? <laughs> <laughs> And some of you are probably wishing I did that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the reason I did that is because, and by the way, that has nothing to do with my message today. Uh, the reason I did is because I wanted to start out a little bit light. Because as I go into my message today, uh, it's going to be a little bit heavy. Um, what I'm going to talk about has a lot to do with my testimony and some of the things that I've overcome. Um, and so I just wanted to start a little bit light because. As we go on, you're going to hear some stuff, and it may make your heart heavy. It may actually trouble you about you a little bit. But I just want you to know that, spoiler alert, Jesus wins today. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus wins today. He always does. Yes. You know, Revelation 12, 11 says this. It says, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lord and because of the word of their testimony. I have overcome, what I'm going to talk about today, I have overcome this. And the reason that I'm here talking about it today is because I have victory through my testimony. Yes. Yeah. My testimony, I'm not only here today to, to tell my testimony and share my struggles with you guys uh, for your sake. I'm, I'm here for my sake. Because the more I talk about it, the more victory I have. And the more I talk about it, the more light is shining on it. The more I talk about it, the more the body of Christ is enlightened about the issue. So, uh, before we move on, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. So, if you just bow your heads with me. Dear Father, what an honor it is to be here today. 
What an amazing time we've had. What an amazing time we've lived in, Lord. I just ask today, today, Lord God, that as I speak, Lord God, that you would articulate your heart through me. That I would get out of the way, Lord. And I would just say the words that that you have predestined and preordained for me to say. I pray, Lord God, that hearts be changed today. I pray that minds be renewed. I pray, Lord God, that lives be changed. Not because of me, Lord God, but because of you. Not because of me, Lord God, but in spite of me. I pray that in Jesus' name. Well, um, John Eldridge, uh, in his book, Wild at Heart, he talks emphatically about how God has wired men. Uh, he's wired men to be a hero. The warrior who battles evil on behalf of, of his, his true love, who rescues the damsel in distress, who is the knight in shining armor come to save the day. Well, if we look at the Old Testament book of Hosea, matter of fact, chapter 1, verse 23, we see that kind of hero. I'm going to read that to you guys real quick. It says this, it says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took over the daughter of Midnight, and she conceived the Lord and son. See, Hosea was a faithful prophet. And in obedience to God, he was obedient to a very strange request. He married a prostitute. He rescued her from her dismal life. He loved her unconditionally. And he did so because God, because God ordered him to do that, commanded him to do it. And God did that because at the time, Israel was being unfaithful to him. Uh, but you know what? I don't want to talk about Hosea. Because when we read the account of Hosea, the focus is on him, and rightfully so. I mean, he's the hero of the story. Uh, but I don't want to talk about Gomer. I want to talk about his wife. See, in verse 2 it says that she was a wife of harlotry. Uh, but if you get into the Greek and all that and that stuff, what you'll understand is that she's not only uh, she's not only in a prostitute, but she's a product of prostitution. In that same verse, in verse 3, it discusses it says that she's the daughter of Nibnaim. Well, 99.9% of the time in Scripture, when it says that so-and-so is the son of or the daughter of so-and-so, it's referring to their father. It's the patriarchal lineage of that person. In this case, Nibnaim is her is Gomer's mother. And the reason that is, scholars believe, is that she didn't actually know who her father was. Her mother was actually a prostitute. As a matter of fact, the word, the name Nibnaim is not an actual name, it's more of a, a nickname, a stage name. Uh, it means two cakes. You know, like in, in our culture today, people who uh, are in the adult industry will take stage names and weird, you know, luscious and whatever, and it's, it's a derogatory term. It's not something that you want your grandmother to call you. You know what I mean? It's, it's a term that describes who you are in, in that particular uh, vein of your life. And so Gomer was a broken girl, raised by a broken woman, taught that her only worth was to provide sexual fulfillment for lustful men. And that became her, not only her means of self-preservation, it also became her identity. And the reason that I want to focus on Lauren is because in my story, I am 
Okay? I was not, have not been, and I am not now the hero of my story. Alright? I was the one in distress. I was the one broken. I was the one in bondage. I was the one who needed to be rescued. Uh, I have never done drugs. Not one day in my life. Not one drug. Ever. I've never been a drinker. I've never smoked. I've never gambled. Yet, for years and decades, I was an addict. My addiction nearly destroyed me. I almost let that addiction take everything, including my life. See, my addiction was to pornography. I was first exposed to pornography at age five years old. Uh, I found the magazine in some bushes. I lived in the housing projects uh, in Southern Ohio, and uh, there was bushes around our playground, and I found a magazine, and I literally looked at that magazine for seconds. But 36 years later, I can remember those images. 36 years. Those images, they were, they were burned into my brain. And what I found through the study on this topic is that um, early exposure to sexually, sexually explicit material literally changes the brain chemistry in children. It changes it irreversibly. It changes them emotionally, stunts their development. Uh, Dr. Kevin B. Skinner, in his book, Treating Sexual Addiction, he said this. He said, when emotional development slows and the mind gets stuck with sexual feelings, a serious sexual addiction is the likely outcome. And that's exactly what happened to me. Because that, that may have been the first time that I was exposed, but it wasn't the last time. And from that time, uh, all the way through elementary school, middle school, high school, I had access to as much porn as I wanted. And much like Gomer, my parents, they contributed in a very large way to obtaining uh, a life-consuming addiction. You know, whether directly or indirectly, they played heroes. My father, he kept videos under his TV, under the, in the entertainment center in his house. He didn't hide them. He didn't, they were just right there out in the open. And I, all I had to do was put the video in the VCR. That's how old I am. VCRs. Um, but anytime I wanted to, I, I could do it. I could just do it. And my peers divorced when I was around the time that I was exposed to porn for the first time. My mom, she married a man who had four sons. All but one of those sons was older than me. And they had magazines stashed all over our house, everywhere. So between the two, between the two homes, I can see the most graphic images that you can imagine any time I please. That's dangerous. Now, what I found out later in life um, was that both of my parents came from a lineage of sexual sin, a lineage of sexual deviancy. Um, they were broken. They were scarred uh, by the sins of their parents and the sin of their parents' parents. Um, and unwittingly, they passed that same brokenness onto me, onto my sister. And my pastor always says this. He always says that hurt people hurt <clears throat> And that's why it's imperative we have to recognize the parts of our lives that are broken. Because we literally can either, we can uh, prolong the brokenness, we can prolong the change and the bondage, or we can break it. But we have to recognize it, and we have to be willing to fight to break those chains. No matter how uncomfortable it is, 
We have to be willing to get in there and do the dirty work for our sake, for our children's sake, yes. for our family's sake, for the legacy of our families. And you know what? For the body of Christ. Yes. Because yes. too many men, too many women are in bondage in the body of Christ, prevented from doing what God called them to do, prevented from being who God called them to be because of shame, because of scars and, and regrets, because they haven't taken the time and, and, and taken the action that they need to take to break these chains. Um, you know, by the time I was a teenager, I had my own videos, I had my own magazines, um, I had been sexually active for years, and my senior year in high school, I was a dad. I had a child. Uh, my mom was in her third marriage, my dad was in the wind, um, and I was a teenager with, with a baby and no money. Okay? Things weren't working out that great. But God, in His mercy and His sovereignty, set in motion for me a plan that I never imagined. And let me tell you guys something. No matter how you feel, no matter what your role looks like, no matter what situation you're in right now, I want you to remember two words. It doesn't matter how dark it is. It doesn't matter how bleak. It doesn't matter that you can't see the end of the road. Yes. The answer is Jesus. Yes. Yes. It doesn't matter because of blood God. Uh, and, and so, at this time, at the beginning of my senior year, out of nowhere, a family took me in. Uh, a family that already had four sons took me in. I was the fifth son. I was the only white kid, so <laughs> I stood out. I was very easy to find in the crowd. Uh, but they provided for me. They loved me. Uh, and most importantly, they started exposing me to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Something I'd never been exposed to in my life. They took me to church. They had my little wannabe thug behind singing in the choir, singing Kirk Franklin songs. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they loved me. I mean, they, they did something that no one had ever done before. They put on display what it looked like to love and to serve Jesus. I've never seen that, ever in my life. So, toward that end of my stay with them, I was getting, I was, I mean, I didn't even know if I was going to graduate high school. This family made that happen. And so toward my end, the end of my stay with them, I was getting ready to graduate high school, and uh, they took me down to Columbus, Ohio, to like a barbecue for some guy's birthday, and I literally met Jesus on the basketball court in Columbus, Ohio. I made Jesus Lord of my life yeah. that day. And he became real to me. He became so real to me, I'd never experienced anything like it in my life. And he completely changed me. I was new, had a passion and a purpose. I never had a passion or purpose for anything. And I knew that day was what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. But I still had a secret. I still had a secret deep down that nobody knew about. <clears throat> And shortly after coming to the Lord, two things happened. I moved to Columbus from Mary, Ohio, where I lived, and I got really serious about me. I hooked up with some guys. We started performing all over Central Ohio. This is back in 1995. I'm sure you know how old I am. Um, and that's when Christian hip hop was just starting to, you know, get some get a foothold. 
And so I jumped up with these guys, and we we were busy every weekend. We were on fire for Jesus. We loved the Lord. We were passionate. Um, and and we were, I mean, we were still, we, we had gifts. But one thing we didn't have was discipline. None of us were plugged into a church. None of us were really under the cover of a pastor. Uh, and I'll tell you something, that's dangerous. We were dangerous because we weren't, we weren't being heralded in. We weren't being roped in. We weren't being corrected and told that what we were doing was maybe not so good. You know, we were out there using our gifts and we were out there proclaiming the gospel, but our lives were a mess. Uh, I didn't understand then, I, and for many years I didn't understand, that uh, character is far more valuable to God than you. Okay? If you read 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, it gives us a list of uh, the attributes that leaders in the faith should possess. And the entire list, only one involves gifts. So there's dozens more, and every one of them have to do with character. They're all related to character. See, God doesn't care how gifted you are if your character is a mess. Yeah, that's true. And at the time, my character was a mess. And so, as the year went along, uh, I was approached by a small record label. I cut some records with a group called Unforsaken. Uh, we traveled quite a bit. I don't know how, because we really weren't that good. <laughs> and so, uh, but we did God's grace. And after that, I met my wife. And then one year after that, we were married. She, she didn't know. She didn't know she was getting into Because if she did, she probably would have like, disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's true. And so I stopped traveling, and I took a job as a corrections officer. I worked in a prison for a number of years. And on the surface, everything was going really well. I had a really good job. Uh, my wife had a small business that she ran out of her kitchen. Um, but I still have yet to deal with my issues. I still have yet to submit to a pastor, to submit to a church. I still have yet to, to confess on this pouring all my junk out in the altar and let God deal with my heart. So the stress of working in this prison, it was weighing on me. My faith life began to suffer. My prayer life began to struggle. I halfway went to church, and I allowed porn to come out. I allowed porn to be my main source of relief. But i got to tell you guys something. Sin is never satisfied. Right? Sin is never satisfied. There's never a time when sin says, okay, I'm good, that's enough, I'm, I'm good, I'm good to go. No, instead, the more you indulge, the more it wants. The more you indulge, the less satisfying it is. Mm. See, let me tell you something. Sin always takes more than you're willing to give. It always takes you places that you don't want to go. And it always gives you what you don't want. And so pretty soon, the magazines and the videos, they weren't enough. My addiction at this point was full-blown. And my road into darkness was just beginning. So, uh, eventually, we moved here to Michigan to do ministry. And my thought was, and you know what, and it was a God thing. My wife and I both 
prayed about it uh, very seriously. We both heard from the Lord separately that, that coming to Michigan was God's will for our lives. But in my heart, my thought was, I can leave my addiction behind. I can start over where nobody knows me, and I can do this thing right. Yeah. Listen, that doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't work. You cannot leave your past behind. You cannot leave your regrets and your scars and your disappointment. You have to deal with them. So all this time, I'm living a double life. Okay? I'm stuck in my addiction. I'm still serving in the church. I'm stuck in my addiction. I'm leading worship. I'm teaching. I'm serving you. I went to Bible college. I got ordained. I started doing engagements all over the country. My wife and I were doing engagements. We were in Tampa, Florida, Georgia, Clarksville, Tennessee, all over Indiana, Ohio, Michigan. We were traveling almost every weekend. But my addiction was destroying me. You can get by on gifts for a minute, but eventually, eventually you're going to get exposed. So I was completely consumed, but I couldn't tell anybody. Because I was convinced that if I shared my secret, I'd be put to shame. And if I shared my secret, I'd be judged, and people would finally know that I was a fraud. And let me tell you something. I was a fraud. Absolute fraud. But what I didn't realize was that confession would have actually brought healing. Yes. See, James 5.16 says this, Therefore confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish let me say that again. Confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. If I'd have known that, if I would have grasped that, what that meant, then I wouldn't have been fooled by the enemy. The enemy continued to tell me, oh, don't tell anybody because you're going to lose your stature. People aren't going to like you anymore. They're going to kick you out of the church. But what the enemy really wanted was to keep me isolated. He wanted to keep me by myself. He wanted to keep me in a place where I was vulnerable and weak. He knew that if I confessed and I put my junk at the altar and I surrounded myself with brothers and sisters who loved me and I and I gave all my junk up to him, that I would be free. Yes. He didn't want that. And so I was still deceived, I was still blind. And it took a long time and a lot of heartache for me to realize this truth. And so some years later, uh, some events took place in our lives. Um, not just a few, a long line of tragic events, a long line of life-changing negative experiences happens in our life. And so when these events took place, I didn't turn to the Lord. I didn't turn to Jesus. And the reason I didn't seek refuge in Him is because all those years, I wasn't filling my heart up with His Word. I wasn't filling my heart and my life up with his promises. Instead, I was filling it up with flesh. I was feeding my flesh, feeding my flesh, feeding my flesh, feeding myself pleasure. And so when, this, when, when the world began to squeeze, the circumstances began to squeeze, what was in me came out. And what was in me was carnality, was flesh. And so instead of giving in to God's grace, I gave in to my addiction. I gave into a full war. And it gave birth to the darkest time in my life. I found myself 
after these events happened, I found myself going to places I never thought I would go. Doing things I never thought I would do. Visiting places, literally, that I had to carry a gun or at least a knife to go because I was so scared. But listen, listen, my addiction was so strong that I never thought one time about not actually going. I mean, logic and sanity would say, if you have to have a gun to feel safe in an area, don't go there. <coughs> but my addiction was so strong that it never crossed my mind. It never crossed my mind. And all the while, my wife, instead of abandoning me, which she had every right to do, she started and then she got other people. And so while I was in the street, she was on her knees. She never gave up. She always believed that God was going to reel me in. You know what? She was right. She was right. See, in my mind, I had given up. My marriage was over. My life was ruined. My name was tarnished. There was no way to escape. My addiction had me. And as far as I was concerned, I was hopeless. There was no hope for me. There was no way that I was getting out of this. There was no way that I was ever going to be free from this. And I had submitted to that. I had just accepted it. I remember one morning, uh, my wife, she took me to see a doctor. I was suicidal. I was literally suicidal. And I was inconsolable. And I was crying so hard that I could barely speak. And this doctor sat across from me. And she was crying almost as hard as I was. And the reason that she was distraught because she didn't have any answers. She didn't have any answers. She didn't know what to tell me. I literally was there just telling her that I didn't want to live anymore, that my life was over. There was no reason for me to go on. And she sat across from me and she just wept. No words. She just wept. Because there was no prescription that could fix what was wrong with me. There was no medicine that could cure the ailment that I had. I needed the power, the anointing of God to fill my life. You know what? That's exactly what happened. Yeah. All the prayers from my wife and from the other saints, they began to take, take effect on me. And the Holy Spirit began to convict me. And God's Word started finding me in the weirdest places. You see, I wouldn't listen to anybody. If anybody ever tried, during that time tried to talk to me about what was going on with me, I would shun them. Like, you know, I, would even, I would even literally threaten to fight them. Because I don't want to hear it. I remember there was this one time uh, and my wife, she was looking out for me um, and she was so scared that I was just going to drive our car into a telephone call. And so she took my car keys and made me walk to work, which was me because it was like 20 below zero. <laughs> but I did. I walked to work there. I walked to work and I was I had the headphones on and I was listening and, and, and uh, for some reason... <coughs> I, I got on my phone and I started listening to this guy named Paul Mallory. He pastors down in Leo, Indiana. And I hit it and he was teaching on Mark. I was Mark chapter 10. Where Jesus talked about marriage. I have no idea. First of all, I have no idea why I was listening to him talk about marriage. I don't even know why I was talking, listening to somebody talk about Jesus. I didn't want to hear it. But I found myself doing it. And, then, and, and, and I'm halfway to work. And Paul Mallory, I felt like he was standing right in front of me, like he grabbed my shirt, and he said this. He said, how dare you consider doing something, how dare you consider doing something that God hates? 
He was talking about the Lord. And then he said it again. He said, how dare you consider doing something that God hates. And I was wrecked. I was wrecked. I was standing in the snow. It was like a thousand degrees below zero. And I felt like my hands were going to fall off. And I literally felt the Holy Spirit in that moment. And I was so convicted. I was so, I was broken. I was broken. You see, Romans 2, 4 says this. It says, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. It wasn't fire and brimstone that led me back. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't people railing at me and pointing fingers at my face and telling me how, uh, how much I had messed up. It was the kindness of God that led me through that. It was His kindness and His mercy and His grace. You know, my, my wife, during this time, she was so gracious. She was so sweet to me. It literally heaped hot coals on my head every time I seen her face. Every time I heard her voice, I felt convicted. I felt, I felt, I felt, ter- I felt dirty because she was, she was literally living out the gospel towards me. She was being Jesus to me. It was amazing, and through her, God showed me His kindness, and it was that kindness that finally broke me. I couldn't resist the pull of God's spirit anymore. I fell to my knees, I cried out to God, and I repented. I remember I called my wife one night, uh, and we were actually separated at the time, because uh, we were really, we were really going to get divorced. And uh, I called her, and this was after God was like, God, I mean, he just ripped my heart out of my chest. And I told her this, I said, whether our marriage is over or not, I want Jesus. And I'm going to serve God everything I have in my life no matter what. And I confess, I confess, I confess everything to her. I confess everything I ever did. And then I started a recovery program to address and overcome my addiction. After some months, she agreed to get some counseling with me. Um, and eventually she welcomed me back into her life. And God resurrected our on May 27th of this year, my wife and I celebrated our 20th anniversary. And we did so by renewing our vows. We had a ceremony in our backyard. The uh, Utah and Christine were there. Almost said the Utahs were there. <laughs> the Wendells were there. Uh, and we had a ceremony. That ceremony featured worship. Had an altar call. We finished it with communion. Because it wasn't only a celebration of our marriage, it was a celebration of the amazing things that God has accomplished in us, through us, and more importantly, for us. See, my wife is my Hosea. She's a hero to me. She's a faithful servant of God who loved the unlovable through unthinkable circumstances. But my wife will tell you right now that she's not the hero of my story. See, in Hosea chapter 3, I'm going to read this to you guys real quick. Uh, it says this. And this is Hosea. After he married his wife, his wife left him. She went back into the streets. She went back to her old life. And this is, what, this is what God said to Hosea. He 
You said, go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress. Even as the Lord loved the son of Israel, though they turned to other gods and loved raisin cakes, so I bought her for myself for fifteen shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Then I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So I will be See, Gomer, much like me, she sold herself into slavery. She jumped right back into the chains of bondage, even though she had a spouse that loved her and provided for her. And in this passage, we see that Hosea was willing to pay for his wife's freedom. But you know, about 15 shekels of silver, that, that was a very poultry amount of money. That was literally half the price of an average slave at the time. Half the price. And then the barley, that was thrown in on the side. That was literally half a ration of a cow's lunch. That's literally half a ration of what you would give a cow to eat. You see, Gomer, she wasn't worth much to society. She wasn't worth much to the people around her, but to Hosea, she was priceless. She was priceless. See, what you may not know is that Hosea is actually the same name as Yeshua. Yeshua is the Hebrew name for Jesus. And much like his namesake, Jesus had a bride. And that bride turned their back on him. And they were unfaithful. And they were trapped in slavery to their own sin. But unlike Hosea, Jesus didn't pay pennies to get his bride. See, he gave everything. Jesus gave his very life to pay for our sins. He submitted to the cross in order to bring us back. See, Jesus wanted me with his love, but he lured me back with his love. And he stands as a true hero of my story. It was his grace that saw me through that dark time, and his mercy allowed me to survive. I want to end by sharing with you guys. Jesus did not die so that you could stay stuck. He didn't die so you could stay in your bondage. He didn't die so you could stay in your addiction. He didn't die so you could stay stuck in your regrets and the scars of your past. He died and rose from the grave so that you could have victory in this life and in Today's your day. I don't know what you guys are dealing with, but God does. No matter how hard you try, you can't hide it. But today's the day, guys. It's your day to be victorious. It's your day to be renewed. It's your day to be free. But it's only in Christ that any of these things are possible. He's the answer. He was the only answer for me. And he's the only answer for you. Let's pray. Oh, dear Holy Father, we give you so much glory, so much praise, Lord God. I'm so thankful, Lord God, that you allow me to come in here and share my heart and my testimony today. I'm so thankful, Lord God, that my past, Lord God, is a kingdom of darkness, but Lord God, has been brought into the light so that you can be glorified, so that we can be benefited. I pray today, Lord God, 
that if anyone in this room is in bondage to sin, in bondage to pornography, in bondage to sexual sin, Lord God, I pray, Lord God, that they be free. I pray, Lord God, that they begin by, by putting those things down at your altar, by confessing, Lord God, their addictions, confessing, Lord God, their brokenness to you and to another trusted brother or sister around them. So that they can begin the process of healing, the process of recovery, the process, Lord God, of sanctification. I pray, Lord God, that they not wait. That they not put it off. But that today, Lord God, be the day of their freedom. Today be the day of their victory. I pray that your Holy Spirit would lead them and guide them in all truth. I pray in Jesus' name, Lord God, that all of us, Lord God, be changed and renewed by your Holy Spirit. Cleansed by your word, washed, made new. In Jesus' holy and precious name.